Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry at Spurgeon College and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. And I'm grateful that you've joined us today on the program. Follow your heart is what I have to say to you. You do you. You are enough. We take these slogans for granted, but what if this path to personal happiness leads to a dead end? In the new book, Rethink Yourself, Trevin Wax encourages, encourages you to rethink some of our society's most common assumptions about identity and the road to happiness. Most people define their identity and purpose by first looking in to their desires, then looking around to express their uniqueness, and finally, maybe, looking up to add a spiritual dimension to life. Rethink Yourself proposes a counterintuitive approach looking up before looking in. It's only when we look up to learn who we were created to be that we discover our true purpose and become our truest selves. I'm grateful to have Trevin Wax with us on the podcast today. Trevin is Senior Vice President of Theology and Communications at Lifeway Christian Resources and a visiting professor at Wheaton College. A former missionary to Romania, he hosts a blog at the Gospel Coalition and serves as the general editor of Lifeway's The Gospel Project. He's authored a few books, including This Is Our Time, Eschatological Discipleship, Gospel-Centered Teaching, and Rethink Yourself, which is what he's here with us to talk about today. Trevin, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. Glad to be here. Yeah, you know, um, do you remember the first time we met? Yes, I believe <laughs> Not it to was get all at... romantic with you, but do you remember the no, first time well, we met, Trevin? <laughs> well, I, I first came across you when you were doing the Thinklings yeah. blog. Yeah. Back in the day, you were one of many, and you were one of my favorite voices there. But I think we actually met for the first time, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it was at the United Methodist Church in downtown Nashville when N.T. Wright came to speak. Yes, that's that's exactly that right. It? That's it. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what that—do you remember what year that was? I was trying to think. It was probably like uh, 2006 or five. I believe it was—I believe it was 2000—well, I— I, I get confused because I, I know I interviewed, I think I interviewed um, Tom Wright at yeah. that time before before he did that presentation. So I think it was probably 2008. Okay. But it's been, it's been a good while. Yeah. Man, it's been a, it's been a long journey, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, not much has changed since 20, you know, 2008, uh, but. Um, no, no, not, not too much, but uh, <laughs> no, that, that was a great night. It was great meeting you and it's been great. Um, you know, knowing you um, all this time. Did the Gospel Project just celebrate a milestone of some kind? N- not really. I, okay. I started. I, I <laughs> okay. celebrated. Yeah, I, I celebrated a milestone of uh, November first was ten years since I came to Lifeway to help start the Gospel Project. Oh, okay. It actually, it didn't launch until the fall of twenty twelve. But if you want to trace back to the sort of the roots of how it got going. Um, that was what I was brought to Lifeway to do, and that happened just ten years ago this month. So, yeah, that's I, that might be what you're you're referring to. I, so, I, I guess kind of a milestone. But yeah, I think that's what I saw. Was um, yeah, you mentioning that, and I, I think I saw that on social media, and just thought it was um, yeah, the Gospel Project. Well, well, that is a Gospel Project milestone. You you coming in to uh, to launch that, and and I, I mean I remember um, because I think. You were one of our first writers. I think I was one of the first writers on the 
on the inaugural uh, installment, Tom, uh, along with Tony Morita and and some others, I, I remember the kind of the workshop meeting that you guys brought us in for uh, to talk about it. It had a different name at that time, didn't it? It was like yeah, we were we were at that point we were going to call it TGM, which was right. Theology Gospel Mission. Yes, uh, and you were you were um, you and that initial group of writers. You guys were the first kind of guinea pigs that like, I didn't, I had never done a writer's conference for a curriculum before. So it was, you guys were, were patient with me. I was learning. <laughs> we're trying to figure this thing out and goodness, the Lord, the Lord certainly blessed those efforts in ways that um, we didn't even imagine or uh, didn't even know to hope for at the time. So, um, you know, I pray he gets, he gets glory for all the work he did with that. I, I think he certainly does, but you guys should really be proud of yourselves as well because the, the Gospel Project has served so many churches uh, over these last 10 years um, so well and really bringing a needed, uh, a needed adjustment to the way churches study the Scriptures and, and experience the Bible. And um, it's just a great—yeah, it's a great product, if I could call it that. It's a great resource, so you guys should be proud oh, of I appreciate what that. you produce. Hey, um, let's talk about your new book, Rethink Yourself. The first thing I want to say is um, this is kind of a snazzy cover, man. It's got a mirror. You got a mirror on the cover. Yeah, you can uh, you can kind of see your reflection in it. And it's <laughs> one of the funny things that happened when it launched was online. Uh, we It seemed like if everyone that was taking pictures of the book arriving, what you saw was this picture of a book with someone's reflection of them holding their cell phone to take the, <laughs> the picture, <laughs> which is a parable in itself of our times, right? Mm. Like you're, that when you look in the mirror, you're looking at, you know, at your, your phone as a sort of mediator in between, yeah. um, which I thought was not something planned, but definitely something interesting about it. It's kind of meta, right? It, Cause yeah. the book is yeah, about, really. yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very meta and it has a, uh, as mirrors do, you hold up a phone to take a picture into the mirror and you end up with this infinite recurrence between image and mirror. And I'm probably chasing the, the metaphor too far here, but uh, it's cool. Probably, it's, uh, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's retro and modern <laughs> at the same time. So um, kudos to the uh, the cover designer. Uh, I'm trying well, to look, I'm I look gotta, inside the book right now to see who that might be. I got to give um, I got to give the design team credit for this one. I was nervous about this cover, but, you know, just. You you always have in your mind, even if you don't have a cover design in mind, you have some kind of cover yep. design in mind. Yep. And I, when this one was presented, I was nervous because I thought, man, if it, it what's it going to look like online? Are people going to kind of get that there's this reflection that's happening? But once I actually, so I, I was nervous, but I, I trusted the design team. And once I actually held it in my hands, I was like, okay, this is one of the coolest covers you know, that uh, definitely anything cooler than I could have come up with. So um, I, I, I really, I really uh, think they did an outstanding job. Yeah, it's great. Hey, um, what exactly is the problem or issue that rethink yourself? And, and we should, um, I should distinguish that the title your and self are two separate words. So if it sounds like I'm stumbling over the word yourself, um, right. yeah, it's, and that's, in, and that's intentional. It's not, it's not a mistake. Uh, um, what is the problem or issue that rethink yourself is addressing? What are you seeing in culture or in the zeitgeist, so to speak, that was worth writing this book to address? Well, in short, I would say um, expressive individualism, although that's a, a term you'll only find in the footnotes or the endnotes of the book. You won't you won't see that in the 
the actual text because I wanted to be I wanted the, the the cookies to be on a lower shelf, so to speak, for just anyone picking up this book to read it. But um, to to explain what that is, expressive individualism is a term that was coined by some sociologists um, in the 1980s um, to describe this understanding of life that is very prevalent in our society, in which the purpose of life is to realize yourself to um, to look deep within, to find yourself, and then to express that self to the world uh, for the applause and acclamation and affirmation of other people. Um, that is, th- there's a, a Catholic philosopher, Charles Taylor, who who describes it as the age of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't mean authenticity in the sense that we would, in in, in this, the sense we would say is, is great, meaning honest or transparent or open or not hypocritical. He means authenticity as opposed to conformity so that there is this one particular way that you yourself as an individual have of realizing your humanity. And you have to do this in opposition to whatever your friends or your family or the previous generation or your political views or your religious affiliation, whatever anyone else tells you, you are responsible for realizing your uniqueness, your humanity, as opposed to what anyone else says. That I think is one of the dominant ways of looking at life that we find in our society. It's the plot line, the narrative drama for many of our films. Plenty of Disney movies followed that kind of trajectory, you know, books, um, television shows, uh, pop songs. I mean, it's to to the point where it's just common sense that, yeah, you got to be you, you know, you got to be true to yourself. You got to look deep within and find what you want the most and then chase, you know, run after it with all your might. And so that's that's the if I could say that's a it's a problem. I don't I don't know that I want to call it the problem. I just want to say, hey, that's the mission field. That's the context that we need to present the gospel in. And one of the ways we present the gospel is by showing not only that the gospel is true, but also that it's better than that that dominant way of seeing life that's just everywhere. Yeah, I mean, so how do you do that? How do you how do you apply the good news? to, you know, someone in this, uh, um, yeah, who's kind of bought into this cultural expectation or, or, or the cultural, you know, mood uh, of the moment? What does the gospel have to say specifically to that kind of uh, expressive individualism mindset? Well, there are different ways you could go about this. I think one of the, I, I think for a lot of people in more conservative circles like you and I are in, the when when you see a worldview or a an imaginative look at the world or a myth a narrative that people live by and you see that it's false the the first thing you want to do is sort of like have this front on assault or attack of you know the lies that you see there um what some other christians do though is they they just completely almost submit to to that way of thinking like church becomes that you know, it becomes yeah. how can you find yourself and how can you be your best self and how can you, you know, live a fulfilling life and 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 how can the church help you chase your dreams and follow your heart? You know, like there. <laughs> so there's that. So there's that that sort of um, pragmatic approach as well. And I don't think either one of those actually gets to the to the crux of where the the, the gospel's transformative power takes place. And so my approach with this book is to. Um, is to to present this way of life, contrast it first 
not with the gospel, but with what passes for common sense in other parts of the world or what has passed for common sense in other parts of church history, uh, which doesn't start with you as the individual, but starts with looking around, not looking in, looking to the community to define you and to tell you who you are and who you must be and whatnot. That's actually a more, that's actually the, uh, a more dominant way of thinking than we might in the West perhaps realize. Um, so I want to do that first to sort of shake up the foundation a little bit so that people that have just bought into this way of thinking without even realizing it, that they have all these assumptions and that they think this is common sense. I want to sort of, my first approach is to, to un that foundation to say, well, you know, this isn't common sense for other people in other parts of the world. Take a look at how they see the meaning of life, you know, and then come back and start poking holes to show, hey, you know, these areas of anxiety you feel, you know, these areas of guilt that you can't get rid of this, you know, this feeling of shame or this feeling that you can't, you're not measuring up to the, 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 you, you're not, you're aspiring kind of person, but you're falling short, like to, to get into the person's heart, so to speak, to show them, hey, these these areas of pressure and anxiety that you feel, those are real, and they're real because this way of life that you have perhaps unconsciously bought into is not actually going to deliver what it promises. So to kind of poke, to begin poking holes in that, to where people can see, okay, I can I can see why this hasn't worked out the way I thought it would, or why it's probably not going to work out the way that I think it will. And and then and only then do I come along with, let me show you a completely counterintuitive way of looking at this, bringing the gospel to bear on it, starting with looking up to God's design first, to our displaying the, his glory first, then to uh, understanding how our desires and our self-definition and how all of that fits into this story of redemption that we see in scripture and how Jesus's way really critiques both the look in first approach and the look around to others approach and leaves us. He's constantly pointing us upward to himself, to his kingdom, uh, to the future that he has promised for us. So, so that's sort of the apologetic approach that I'm taking in the book that I hope is going to be helpful for, for people that, that read it, whether Christian or non-Christian. That's great. The, the looking in and looking around, um, dynamic is, I think really important to consider in terms of our our sense of you know self conceptualization. I wonder if you've heard. Um, I wish I had the the references handy here, but it makes me think of some reports that I had read recently about uh, during this shutdown when schools shut down and and kids all came home. Um, I had heard reports of. Um, kids who were identifying as as trans, um, you know, uh, you know, biological males identifying as females, and and I think more so vice versa. That w- when they had to come home and were home for long periods of time, th- were beginning to rethink their, um, you know, their uh, um, you know sense of sexual identity uh, back towards their biological gender. There was something about being removed from perhaps the social pressure of the social environment. That was, um, you know, affirmational or peer groups that uh, shared the same, um, you know, sense of of, of affirmation of, um, you know, the, the the trans identity and that sort of thing. That if that w- would be an example of, well, I can't, you know, when I look around, I don't see the affirmation of what I, you know, was leaning towards or what I felt like my identity is, and therefore now I'm even rethinking. Because I don't have that social pressure, 
to either affirm or even a challenge. Sometimes there's a you know re- rebellious against the challenge. I enjoy the you know provocation of this. Um, I wonder if that would be like an example of this dynamic of the looking around, affirming what I see looking in, and therefore kind of even you know further bolstering uh, a disordered identity or something like that. Yeah, this is this is really where you see um, what what our society's expectations are, um, and it and it does it does come out in, in things like you know uh, the transgender movement and some of those ideologies. It, it also, I, I think, I think what's fascinating about it is that the the assumption is you determine who you're going to be. Um, you're you're the one in charge of that. You're the one who defines yourself. And the it, it, because I, what I like to say in the book is the first and greatest commandment is this: be true to yourself. You be you. The second commandment is like it: affirm whatever your neighbor says they are, <laughs> affirm whatever self they choose to have. Right. And so the in that kind of society, then the greatest sins are just the flip of those two. Your the greatest sin is to not be unique, to not be yourself, to not be everything that you're you think you are supposed to be. And then the the, the second greatest sin is to not affirm what someone else says they are or <laughs> right. who someone else is there. So this is where a lot of pressure comes out in in our in religious circles because we we understand that the um what we, we see the solution to sin as repentance. Whereas the solution in the sort of expressive individualist world of thinking, the solution to that sense of self-failure or sin is reassertion, that instead of repenting, you reassert yourself. You actually go you go deeper into yourself. You, you double down. You, you double down, yeah. right? And what, what's, what's sad about that is that our friendships ultimately grow much shallower as a result. There, historically, there's always been this this um both an affirmational side of friendship that's true that you have a friend who's going to stick with you through thick and thin who will overlook your your flaws and some of your warts and and problems and will bear with you uh long suffering is the old english word you know for that um but there's also there's also been an aspirational side to friendship in the past where um a a good friend wants to draw out what's best in you wants to to draw out the most virtuous, the best version of yourself that you can be. And so is going to be the kind of person who, who will challenge you when you're going down a wrong path or will we will rebuke you at times if you're making decisions that are going to hurt yourself or hurt other people. Um, we'll tell you when you're not doing something that is, you know, putting you in a flattering light, you know, like, <laughs> like there's always been this, this affirmational and aspirational side to friendship. Um, what, what, what you get though in our time is we've moved away from the aspirational side completely. We've moved into more just an affirmation. And the problem with that is those affirmations, they ring hollow. They don't, they don't go as far. They're superficial because we don't have friends who really can tell us the truth about ourselves. We have friends who tell us what we want to hear and say they accept and affirm what we, we, we want friends that will even celebrate our warts, not help us try to get rid of them, you know? And, and that, that leads to a, um, a a real loneliness, a profound loneliness that only I think the friendship of Jesus Christ through the gospel can resolve. 
Well, that's a great segue into my next question. <laughs> Speaking of, of friends who will speak the truth to us, what does Jesus have to say about, uh, about our identity and about expressive individualism, perhaps specifically? Well, what's fascinating about the Gospels is how Jesus counters both the look-in approach and the look-around approach. <laughs> yeah. And both of those—so take the look-around approach where the community is definitive for you. I mean, Jesus is the one who says some just absolutely shocking things in that kind of culture. I mean, to, you know, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters look around, you know, to, to those who are around me, basically. Um, if you're going to follow him, you have to uh, hate your father and your mother and your family. Which, I mean, obviously, he's he's speaking with hyperbole there to make the point. He comes first, right? Yeah. Um, also, he comes first. When he says... Let the dead bury their own dead, you know, telling the man that wants to go and, and bury his father first. Like, Jesus is multiple, multiple times throughout the Gospels. We see him saying that the community is not what defines you, that your relationship to him, he's the one who, who defines you. So on the one hand, you have him challenging societies and cultures that would be, hey, look around first to get your identity. But you also see him challenging our culture, our society, when we say we look in first, because it's Jesus who says, you don't look inside yourself to find yourself. You have to lose yourself in order to find yourself. You have to uh, lose your life in order to, to, to save it. To, um, Jesus is the one who says, if you're going to follow him, you have to pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow him. So there's, there's this, this road of self-denial that rather than self-affirmation, that counterintuitively and ironically leads to greater joy, to ultimate self-fulfillment. As you deny yourself and your fallenness, everything in you that is not in line with Jesus Christ, you pick up your cross, you deny um, those, those aspects of yourself. It's a dying daily, a crucifying, a dying to, to your sinful self. Um, you do that as you, as you do that, though, you be actually become your truest self, the person that God created you to be, which what's fascinating about this, Jared, is that God, it, we're not, Christianity doesn't teach like some other religions, you know, that the, the, the ultimate heaven or peace is to, to lose your personality. The, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God did make you unique. He made you in his image. And the, the best version of Jared Wilson is the Jared Wilson that is most like Jared and most like Jesus. Yeah. Those two things ultimately aren't in conflict. It's the 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 refining away of the dross and the sin in the in the the selfish Jared or the selfish Trevin that as that begins to subside, we don't become less of ourselves, we become become more of ourselves. We're not less human when when sin is conquered. We are more human. We're more fully alive to who God has called us to be. That's the picture of redemption that comes to the cross. That's the the, the this breathtaking vision of life that that Jesus sets before us. What a miracle that the the longer we walk with Jesus, the more like Him we become, and the more our true selves we become. Um, and, right. and, and yeah, and and all of us. I mean, it's it's such a a strange, beautiful mystery that we all become more like Christ, and each are more our true selves. Um, you alluded to this earlier. Um, but I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more. Do you think American evangelicalism really gets 
the self-denial to which Christ calls the church? In, in short, no. Um, <laughs> I know I know we're broad brushing, so yeah, yeah broad brushing just... here. I mean, of course, yeah, but I I think um I we you, we just have to understand, and this is one of the things I hope that church leaders listening will understand. Um the 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 challenge of expressive individualism or the idea that you look inside to find yourself and then express yourself to the world that that's the purpose of life that is not a problem or a challenge out there it's a challenge in our churches um there one of the one of the the things that i think is important for us to realize is that you can have two people standing next to each other in a worship service singing the same worship songs, listening to the same sermons, and yet be there for absolutely radically different reasons. One person may be there because they see the purpose of life is, you know, in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, or not the Westminster Confession, the Catechism, um, you know, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? The the, the full purpose of humanity, the the ultimate purpose of humanity is to to bring glory to God and, and to enjoy him. So you may have someone who's standing there and who's getting, I mean, they they have a God-centered view of reality. God is at the center. They're at the periphery. They're there for for worship of, of him, uh, to grow closer to him, to um, to, to grow in Christ-likeness. Um, at the same time, you have someone next to them who's singing the same songs, listening to the same sermon, and the reason that they're there is because they think the church is an aid in their own pursuit of self-discovery and self-help. Um, that's, that's the reality of the context that we're facing. So one of the things we have to do as church leaders, when we talk about things like self-denial and self-fulfillment and is, is making sure that we are presenting, not just, not only presenting the gospel, but presenting the gospel in a way that shows how it's counter to the prevailing philosophies of our time. That's, it's that second step, not just, Hey, I'm going to present the gospel of Christ crucified. Because it it can be true that both of the people I'm talking about in that worship service would affirm the same doctrinal statements, right? That they would right. say, "Yeah, Jesus is the only way to God, and you know the the, the Bible mm-hmm. is true, and everything it says, and Jesus died on the cross for my sins." And yet, they the, have radically different orientations to life and to their you know their faith. And so, as as church leaders, we've got to get better at at um, being apologists who, when we present the gospel, we do so in a way that um, exposes the faulty foundations of, of other worldviews that are so prevalent in our, in our time. Yeah, you, you talk towards the end of the book about, about you know, retraining ourselves. I think this kind of lends itself into this sort of, okay, what next? If, um, you know, statement, re- retraining ourselves. What, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? And and how do we do it? Well, I don't think that we get very far in an expressive individualist culture simply by believing the right things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, but, but one of my, one of my hopes in the book is I want to show, yeah, I, I do want people to be able to see this way of life, this philosophy, when they're watching a movie, when they're reading a book, when they're, you know, I want them to be able to see it because I think when you know what it is, you you see it better. You can you know what's true and false in it. Um, but I don't think we get very far just by seeing it 
and by believing the right doctrines, um, I, I believe that our practices, our spiritual disciplines, how we, how we live matters for how we're going to live, if we're going to actually live differently than the people around us. And so uh, one of the, so the, the end of the book spends quite a bit of time talking about the importance of habits and retraining ourselves um, with particular spiritual disciplines so that we are reinforcing uh, this God-centered view of reality, this looking up before looking in. I, I, I liken it to, um, you know, you go to the beach and if you get out in the waves and maybe catch some waves, look for some fish or something. And, you know, after about five minutes, you look back at the shore and you realize you're like, wait, who moved my stuff? You know, and then you realize <laughs> right. that no one moved anything. You just drifted, right? You you drifted with the current. You didn't even know it. It was imperceptible to you. Um, all of us are going to drift toward a UBU expressive individualist way of life unless we are actually actively pushing back against the current, with, like actually walking in a particular direction. So you can know you drift, but you've got to actually walk the other way in order to, to get back and to recenter yourself and to realign yourself. And so w- when we talk about things like daily Bible reading, prayer, being t- in, in community, um, being in, in, in the church, uh, fasting, things like this, th- these are, these are spiritual disciplines of resistance. Mm. They're, they're not simply let's do them because we, we just, we need to do them. They're also ways of counterforming ourselves. Wait, and, and so I, I talk about, I, I think we've got to be specific with these two, because even, even doing general spiritual disciplines, I don't think is enough to necessarily have a counterformative mm. impact. I, I think we've, we've got to even take a step further and to say, okay, what in these spiritual disciplines would actually help to subvert this, this, this dominant yeah. framework that I would move toward or would help me avoid this kind of drift? And so that's why the book moves in that direction. It's because through the power of the Spirit, these these actions, these things that we can do to retrain ourselves so that we have different habits, different, different desires. We've got to discipline our desires. You know, that we, uh, Jesus is in the, in the business of redeeming what is, what it is that we want the most, you know, all those come into play if we're going to truly live the Christian life in a world like this. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's super important and, and it always has been, but certainly going forward for the very reasons you just articulated that it's not simply a matter of telling people to read their Bibles, but actually showing them how in, in ways that, you know, make much of Christ and, and, and less of themselves. Um, you know, for all right. the, you know, you know, for all the reasons that you were sharing that we actually find ourselves when we lose ourselves and, and that sort of thing. Um, I want to close with a question that um, I'm going to begin asking more and more folks on, on the podcast, just kind of a, a standard question here. As we look forward, I wonder if you have any um, prognostication, <laughs> given um, the chaos and conflict and just the weirdness of not just this year, but the years leading even up to this year, um, if, um, yeah, if, if, if you have a hunch or a guess as to what the church will look like in, in five years, so not going too far out, but just in five years is, you know, on the other side of whatever this is, um, you know, is the church going to look different? 
yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I, I I always when we're talking about the future feel a a, a little bit apprehensive. <laughs> I can be, tell be, because because I mean God just upends people's expectations so many times. And so, yeah, in my mm. role at Lifeway Research, I do get to see a lot of research and trends and what's happening with church attendance and with, you know, <laughs> different denominations and groups and things. But, you know, God changes trend lines a lot in history. So mm. I it, like this idea sort of that, hey, this is where the world is going. I There's a, there's a, there's a bit of a, um, I think it's a, it's a Chestertonian impulse that I have too, where I just have like this immediate reaction like does not want to say that because because <laughs> um because that that's so many people use that as a way of saying what they what where they what progress constitute what constitutes progress and how they want the world to go but i i i, I would say this with all those caveats aside um i i do believe we're in for a period of what we might call a winnowing of the church um, i believe it's already happening um, as the social costs for evangelical Christianity continue to rise, um, the the presence of true evangelical witness in many of our churches, or many of the people who will be associated with that, and I mean evangelical by belief, not the political meaning of evangelical, which is sure. uh, a different a different animal. Um, that is going to can most likely continue to, to, to be smaller, not necessarily because we've lost people or that people are no longer devout, but because people who have generally been nominal in their church affiliation, their church attendance, holding loosely to their religious beliefs are likely to, to not see as much need for what they think the church would offer them. And so I, I do expect that we will see a winnowing of the church. We will see more people identifying as secular, as nothing. And at the same time, though, a, a, a very strong devotion among those who, who remain. So one of the things you're seeing is the, the, the nominal are becoming less religious. The devout are becoming more so. Yeah. And so, you know, there's good and bad with that. There's good sides and bad sides to, to what that looks like, but it gives me hope that there is a renewed center, a core of God's people, a remnant, if you will, that is going to be uh, strong and mightily used of, of God in the, in, the, in the coming years. And so I, I see in the next five years that picture probably becoming clearer. Um, I, I tend to think you're right. I certainly hope you're right. I, uh, I very much appreciate the optimistic word. I think gospel people should be hopeful people, realistic people, um, and, and, you know, pessimistic in the, or, or cynical in the right ways, <laughs> but, um, because our Lord reigns and he will build his church, uh, we have great cause to be optimistic people. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Trevin. Thank you, Jared. We've been speaking with Trevin Wax, author of the new book, Rethink Yourself, The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In. It's published by Broadman and Holman. It's a really important book. You should pick it up wherever good books are sold. Trevin, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast, brother. Thanks so much, Jared. I appreciate you. As always, dear listener, if you like the podcast, please share us with your friends. Give us a good review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every little bit helps. And until next time, 
May Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.